0: how to sit with your emotions when you're lonely or angry, frustrated or overwhelmed, how to self-soothe without a drink, and how to turn the decision to stop drinking from your worst case scenario to the best decision of your life. I am so glad you're here. Now let's get started. Hi there. Welcome to this episode of the Hello Someday podcast. I'm really excited about my guest today who is Claire Pooley. Her book, The Sober Diaries, How One Mom Stopped Drinking and Started Living, is based on her blog, "Mummy Was a Secret Drinker, which describes her first 365 days of living without alcohol. Claire, at the time she stopped drinking, was a middle-aged, her words, over-educated, over-privileged, formerly overweight mom of three, who had a long love affair with high priced, good quality wine until she realized that the relationship was going nowhere but downhill. So she showed at the door and started blogging to take her mind off her broken heart. And Claire has done so much work. She's done an inspirational TEDx talk called Making Sober Less Shameful, and I'll link in the show notes of this episode so you can watch it. She published a novel, The Authenticity Project, earlier this year. I read it on vacation this summer with my family by a lake in Bend, Oregon, and it was exactly what I needed to escape the pandemic and all of life for a while. So Claire, thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's so exciting to meet across the virtual pond. (laughs) I know. And I told you before we got on, I was thrilled when you wrote me back, when I reached out to you to say that you were happy to be on the podcast because your book, The Sober Diaries, is one of the first I recommend to all of my clients as their first stopping drinking, because not only do you take people through the early days, what you're thinking, what you're feeling on day one and day 14 and day 33, but you also do a really wonderful job of sort of contrasting your life when drinking and your life without alcohol and really highlighting how much better it is incrementally step-by-step.
1: Oh, thank you. Well you know, you know when I when I quit drinking um I read so much stuff. I, I was became addicted to reading books. It was my new addiction. I had a whole load of stopping drinking books piled under my bed, you know? And um I found that all the memoirs generally that I read were about the drinking days. They were about people sort of drinking lots and doing stupid things and all the sorts of things that I'd done and I'd nod away thinking yes yes that sounds fairly familiar. And then at the end of the book, they'd say, and then I quit drinking and now my life is fine. And I thought, well, hang on, hang on. How did you quit drinking? And in what way was your life fine? And how long did it take before it was okay? And what did it feel like? And I had so many questions like that that I couldn't find answers to. And that's really why I wanted to publish the Sober Diaries, which is the story of what happens next. You know, what happens after you quit drinking?
0: Yeah. And I mean, I love that because that's what people need. I mean, when I quit drinking, I ended up doing it with a sober coach and I sort of wrote her every day on day one and day three and day 17. So I have that log of exactly Mm -hmm. how I was feeling, exactly what my mind was doing, my fears about going out to dinner with my husband and who I was and how irritated I was and just strung so thin in the beginning. and you know, you call it the wine witch, it was all those thoughts about like, maybe I'm overreacting, maybe this isn't a big deal. And so other women need to hear that. Because a lot of times people are like, yeah, you quit and you're happy, but you're clearly you didn't love drinking as much as I did. You know, (laughs) your friends were not as big drinkers as mine are, your husband didn't drink. And, you know, we all have the same thoughts regardless.
1: Yeah, you know, and that was the amazing thing I found when I started writing my blog. I mean, I started the blog about uh, two or three days after I quit drinking and it was my form of therapy and I, I wrote in it every day. And, you know, I I honestly thought I was the only person who was going through the sort of things I was going through. I thought I was the only person with this voice in my head that, you know, kept talking to me about about how much I should drink and when I should drink and if I should drink and all that sort of stuff. And uh, and when I started writing this blog, I found out that I wasn't unique at all, and I wasn't alone. And you know, I didn't need to feel so ashamed because there were thousands and thousands of other women like me all over the world who felt exactly the same way. And that was such
0: a relief. You know? It it's really awesome. such a relief. And there are women out there struggling with this who are smart and hardworking and love their kids and you know do all the right things, and yet the Your voice telling you to drink and to drink more, and that drinking's a good idea, and that you'll feel less anxious if you just open that bottle, is there, so it's not yeah. that you're a weak person or a bad person, it's a thing that happens to everyone because it's addictive,
1: yeah, and I think part of the problem is that as a society we're taught to believe that you are either a normal drinker who drink doesn't have an issue with alcohol or you're an alcoholic and an alcoholic looks a certain way and acts a certain way. And, you know, there is a sort of there is a typecast imagery around that person that didn't fit with who I thought I was and, you know, where I was with my Alcohol issues. And I think now there is much more of an understanding that actually alcohol addiction is a whole host of shades of grey. It's not as clear cut as normal or alcoholic. There is a whole spectrum of, of issues in between. And you know, I I know now I now I understand that it's, you know, I, it, it, it makes so much sense to me, but at the time it, you know, I, I just didn't know where I fit because yeah. I didn't fit either of those categories. I didn't think.
0: Yeah, no, I completely and totally agree. And you actually talk about this really, um, clearly and well in your TEDx talk about making sober less shameful because you talk about how addictive, alcohol is as a drug. I think you said it's, it's more addictive than cocaine.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's extraordinary actually, because we do not treat it like a drug at all. You know, (laughs) we we treat it as a sort of perfectly harmless substance, but it is, you know, the fourth most harmful drug to the human body of, you know, any drug available according to a big study that was done by a chap called Professor Nutt in the, in the UK. It was one of the government advisors. And, you know, he said that the only three drugs that were more harmful um, than alcohol were um, crack cocaine, uh, crystal meth and heroin, you know, and that, that was it. Yeah. So, you know, so it is horribly harmful, but at the same time, you know, we we treat it like it's just a bit of fun. And, you know, and when you get... You know, if somebody gets addicted to alcohol, people tend to blame you. They blame you for being addicted rather than blame the drug for being a drug.
0: And, you know, it's a bit screwed up, really. Oh, it's completely screwed up. And you talk about in in your TEDx talk, but it's because whenever anyone sort of falls off the cliff, and I agree with you, it's a spectrum, right? No one, when I stopped drinking, was really telling me, you need to stop you know, my husband was like, do you really need to open bottle number two on a Tuesday? <laughs> and I was like, well, I, you know, I'm having a party in my living room after the kids are going. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like me. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, you know, no one was saying you need to stop. And yet when I stopped, it was sort of like, oh, you must have a problem. You know, that.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. But hang on. I, I'm the one that's not, taking an addictive drug. So why do I have the problem? <laughs> you know, oh my God, that's my favorite thing. You guys thing. have the problem and I don't. So yeah, it, it, is, it is completely, as we would say in the UK, ask about tit. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, I think the whole sort of, you know, the whole language and imagery and everything that we use around alcohol addiction is just is not helpful you know we talk about a disease and we talk about recovery and we talk about um, alcoholism and all these sort of you know all these these words and imagery that actually is is very negative and mm-hmm. whereas actually being sober is such a positive thing you know and and I like to talk about being a non-drinker um, uh, rather than being an alcoholic and I like to talk about uh, being a clean drinker, or being a sober warrior, or you know, uh, all that sort of all that sort of terminology, uh, which I think is much much more positive. And it's not saying that, not because I'm in denial. You know, I know I was addicted. I completely put my hands up to that, and I had all the terrible behaviours that go with addiction. And I'm not denying any of that. I'm just saying that, you know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life defining myself by all those negatives, because I think yeah. what I've done is a really positive thing. And the way I'm living my life is a very
0: positive way to live life. And, and I want to describe it in ways that reflect that. Well, I'm so glad you said that. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the podcast. Cause I feel the exact same way. I don't actually use the word alcoholic to describe myself at all. I don't think it's helpful. I feel like it doesn't matter and I'm not even sure if I am. And if I start thinking about it, it throws me off my game. I know that I was addicted to alcohol. It is addictive, and I don't screw with it anymore, and I'm happier without it. But I'm super proud to have quit drinking mm. this really addictive substance that is all around us as sort of a healthy choice to live a better life, to stop numbing out. Yeah, did you, uh, did you use to Google, am I an alcoholic, late at night? I actually didn't. Probably oh. because I was scared. I know everyone else and their grandmother did, but I didn't. <laughs> but I did read Drinking a Love Story. That, oh, book. Yeah. that was my first yeah. book. And I hid it in uh, my Kindle, which is ridiculous because I didn't want my husband to see it. So I would like read mm-hmm. it and then I would open like three other books when I was done. So it would like push down the page, <laughs> which is the stupidest thing like he ever looked at my Kindle. <laughs> And when I read it, I wrote myself a note saying, oh, my God, I think I'm an alcoholic, like in a Word document. And then I was like, I need to stop. This is a serious issue. And then I came back to the Word document four days later and wrote, just kidding. I was overreacting.
1: (laughs) I used to to often, uh, you know, normally when I was drunk google am I an alcoholic and you used to get those quizzes that you had to answer and it would say do you drink alone and do you uh do you drink in the mornings and all this sort of thing and I would answer some of the questions I'd say yes and some I'd say no and then I'd say okay well I don't and then it would come up with the answer which was you may or may not be and I was like well that's not really very helpful is it and and it took me a long time to realize I was asking the wrong question and the question wasn't am I an alcoholic? Because who the hell knows and who the hell cares? The question is, is alcohol messing up my life? And yes. the answer was very simple. Yes, it was. And it yes. had been years. And if I'd asked myself that question, I would have quit probably a lot earlier. Instead, I was far too busy trying to work out whether or not I was an alcoholic. And yeah. the, other, the other issue is, that goes alongside it is this myth that you have to get to rock bottom before you can quit. And I've heard people say that over and over again. Oh, you can't quit until you get to rock bottom. Who the hell wants to get to rock bottom? I mean, why is that a good idea? Yeah. So, you know, so I think getting off that slippery slope before you get to rock bottom is a wholly good thing and and sticking on it until, you know, you've lost your home and your family and your job and everything else seems to me to be a bit crazy.
0: Well, yeah, and it's also, it's not, I feel like we build it up to be such a thing that the only people who would quit drinking are people who've had such serious negative consequences that they literally cannot drink anymore, Mm -hmm. where the truth is that deciding You know, in my mind, deciding not to drink can be the same as deciding to be a vegetarian or a vegan. You know, like
1: it's a lifestyle choice.
0: It's a lifestyle choice. It's, you know, people talk all the time about like minimizing gluten and sugar and all that shit. Like, you know, taking out alcohol, which is a cancer causing toxin, is so much more effective than like screening out gluten from your diet. And yet, you know, It's not so you can go to a dinner party and just be like, oh no, actually I'm I'm drinking. You know, I brought my own drink. I drink non-alcoholic beers. I drink ginger beer. I drink, you know, mojitos with no alcohol in them. Mm. It's the same as saying I'm gonna, you know, eat the like vegetarian lasagna instead of the meat lasagna.
1: Yeah, and you know what? Amongst millennials, you know, sort of the under twenty fives, it that is a really well accepted thing, you know, I mean, there there is not such an issue about choosing, you know, to live a life without alcohol is, you know, whereas amongst my generation is, I'm not sure if it's the same in the US, but oh, certainly it is. <laughs> it, it's, it's still seen as being really strange. Well, why <laughs>
0: is that? I mean, you said in your research that well-educated middle-aged women are the most likely to drink problematically. And I see that, just in my own life with my friends, you know, women in the corporate world, women with kids who used to work like we drink a ton and normalize it. It is not weird for people to drink a bottle of wine a night. Like no, everybody's like, no, oh, yeah, I, I do I that, too. Everyone was doing it.
1: <laughs> yeah. know, and I'm sure they weren't. But that, that's certainly the way I felt, because, you know, our social media feeds are full of jokes about wine o'clock and mommy's little helper. And, you know, we're all sort of egging each other on. And you know, and I think a lot of it has to do with the way alcohol was marketed towards us. And you know, um, I grew up in the—I mean, I was a, uh, a, a teenager in the uh, sort of late '80s, and um, you know, and it was the it was the era of Bridget Jones and <laughs> yes. Sex in the City and Mother uh, and um, uh, Absolutely Fabulous. I don't know if that you had that over over yep. in the US, and it was all. Women drinking and drinking lots of wine and and uh, cosmopolitans and you know cocktails and and you know I I was I think I was I I honestly felt that um, drinking as much as the men was a form of feminism and yes. women's liberation and it was all about being a strong independent woman and you know and it was crazy you know why is doing yourself so much harm, something that goes along hand in hand with feminism. I, I, you know, it doesn't make any sense, but but that was really the way it was sold to us, I think. And, you know, and then on top of that, we all we were the first generation really that had high pressurized jobs and kids and we were trying to juggle everything and alcohol was just a really quick and seemed like a very simple way of winding down at the end of the day um and you know and wine in my book uh, because it was it could be seen as sophisticated and you know if you spent enough money on a bottle of wine you were a connoisseur right you know I love that you
0: partner. said you you went for the high priced yeah uh, so <laughs> i
1: spent ridiculous amounts of money on wine because i thought if i spent enough money then it was you know it wasn't uh you know it was it wasn't an issue it was it was about being yes like said, about being a connoisseur um, yes. and, and it was a hobby and not a, a a habit so yeah so it's it's crazy, but that's certainly the way i th- I think our generation you know grew to have a relationship
0: with alcohol the way we do and so you're saying millennials aren't the same way they aren't relying no. on it in this tell me tell me a little bit about that. So well, I
1: know again. I I don't know the figures for the U.S., but um, I imagine it's pretty similar in in the U.K. Um, about twenty five between twenty five and thirty percent of under twenty fives um, don't drink. Um, you know, now when I was at university, I didn't know anyone who didn't drink. Yes, me either. You know, nobody at all. Um, so things are changing, and you know, I think for. A lot of younger people they they don't see in the same glamorous way that, that we did, so i think I think things are changing, and there are a lot more you know um, so when I quit drinking, which was five years ago, people didn't really talk about it. It was very you know an alcoholics anonymous you know, has the word anonymous in the title, you know, everybody was really quiet about it. And there was so much shame wrapped up in the whole sort of issue of addiction that it was sort of, you know, I I used to, when I first quit, I never, I didn't tell anyone. I was sort of, apart from the people in my blog, but, uh, you know, I I used to fake drinking. So I would, I would drink, you know, I would drink mocktails and I would drink alcohol-free beers and I would pretend I was drinking Mm -hmm. when I wasn't which is crazy. Whereas now there, you know, if you look at Instagram, it's filled with sober influencers. And I love that. I think it's yeah, so amazing. People being really out and proud about it. Yes. And, you know, and that makes such a difference. And I, I mean, I love Instagram for that because Instagram is such a visual medium, you know, and, you know, I hid behind a pseudonym and, you know, and I didn't show my face at all. And I love the fact that people are out there saying, this is me and I am sober and, you know, hurrah because it's changing things.
0: The work you did and are doing helped so many people. I mean, so including myself, right? If you hadn't started your blog so many women wouldn't have read it. I mean, it went viral. All these people were connecting through it. You were helped. And then your book exponentially. So, I mean, I did a podcast episode on the best lit for women. And I was thrilled because I got all these amazing, smart, accomplished, cool women I know to talk about the books that helped them quit drinking. And, you know, so you can hear their voices. And I think I had three different women talk about the sober diaries oh. and talk about like, I read this when I was one month sober. I actually read this before I quit drinking. And just, I get goosebumps because the books you're putting out in the world where someone says, oh yeah, drinking was a huge part of my personality and I worked and I was terrified that my life and my social life would be over. And now it's better. And I can hold your hand in your book. You really hold people's hand through month one, month two. I mean, it's amazing.
1: Well, you know, I mean, I still get I still get messages every single day from people all over the world saying, you know, that they've they found it helpful and that you know, like me, they felt very alone and they were scared and you know didn't know what to expect and it helped and that you know it was. It was really scary publishing it, actually. Oh, God, I can't imagine. I was was anonymous for so long and then, you know, publishing a book under my real name. And I, you know, I was terrified and it seemed like a really good idea until a few days before. And then I thought, what am I doing? I thought, is it too late to pull out? And of course it was too late to pull out. Yeah. Um, And my publishers had organized, you know, I was going to be on national TV and national radio and all in, in the serialized in the press and all sorts of things. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to tell everybody the worst things about my life. And, you know, I, I'm not sure my um, my in-laws have forgiven me yet. So, yeah, it was terrifying, but it was so it was really worth it. So hearing people like you say
0: things like that, you know, just makes me realize it was all worthwhile. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. Well, so last night was just marking up your book and I had, you know, 25 different sections that I was like, Ooh, we should talk about this. But I wonder if you might, if I read something from your day 365 post Mm -hmm. when you went to a year. Go ahead. So so you said, now I realize how easy it is for drinking to evolve from social lubrication to self-medication. You start off drinking at times of celebration. Then you begin drinking for relaxation then commiseration, apprehension, agitation. Before long, you're using alcohol to deal with any emotion at all. But then when you get used to using wine to numb your way out of tricky situations, you get to the stage where you're unable to cope with them in the raw. In fact, you're unable to cope with almost any situation in the raw. You become more anxious, more fearful, more depressed. I mean, that was the exact pathway that I went down. Mm,
1: and, and me and, I, and the thing is it happens so gradually that you don't notice yeah and then you suddenly get to a point where you look at your life and you think how did I get here how did I go from being somebody who was really confident and brave and outgoing um to being somebody who you know can't pick up the phone to somebody they've not met without a glass of wine for you know to, to give them to give them courage you know I mean yeah. it was It was crazy. And it took me a while to put two and two together and to realize the reason I got to that point was my drinking. But um, yeah, it does. It seeps away at you. And you know, there's a book I read quite early on in my sobriety, which I found really helpful, which is Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. You know, it's a classic self-help book. It was published a long time ago by a lady called Susan Jeffers. And that's, I think that's really one of the main things that has changed in my life is, you know, I've learned to deal with fear and I realize that not only can I do it, but I realize more importantly that all the best things in life exist on the other side of your maximum fear. So now when I'm scared about something, I think, okay, this is because it's important. You know, this is, I'm doing something really important. So, So the TEDx talk, for instance, that you mentioned, I was terrified about doing that. You know, I thought, I watched loads of TEDx talks, uh, TED Talks and I assumed that, um, that there was some sort of tele you know, a- auto-cue and um, that people were reading from an auto-cue and that's not the case. They don't let yeah. you use notes or auto-cues or anything. You have to learn your 15-minute talk, um, you know, and do the, deliver the whole thing without notes. And I hadn't done that sort of thing since I was at school, you know, which was a long time ago. (laughs) So so I was terrified that I'd stand there and just freeze and not know what to say. And it was, you know, there was a big audience and it was being live streamed and it was really scary. And it was one of the most thrilling things I've ever done, but I would never have done that while I was drinking. I would have been far too scared. Or like drink before (laughs) it and it would have been a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. So, so yeah, so that, that has really changed my life learning to deal with all my, you know, when you learn to deal with all your emotions, it makes you courageous in a way that, you know, I hadn't been since I was a child, probably.
0: Well, one of the things that I underlined, and I was just like, yes, this, because it resonated so much with me, is you said, one of your biggest, I think it was in a section about regrets, you said, you didn't so much regret the things you'd done which was true for me too i mean that i went to aa briefly and i was like i don't think i'm a bad person i don't have a ton of amends to make i didn't you know that didn't resonate with me as much as you said you regretted the things that you didn't do that your world kind of got smaller and the days mm-hmm. kind of slipped through your fingers as you were sort of just drinking and recovering and managing and coping. And that resonated with me, too, because you said that you wondered what you could have achieved in your life in those years had you not been drinking. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know,
1: and also when you have kids, and your kids are growing up really fast, you know, I thought, actually, their childhood is just slipping through my fingers, you know, and I'm not present you know, in the moment um, enough to, to sort of, you know, really cherish their childhood. So, um, so yes, it's, um, and you know, they, what's interesting when I talk to people who quit drinking is how much stuff they managed to fit into their lives, you know, so I look at the 10 years before I gave up drinking, and I didn't achieve a huge amount at all. I mean, I, you know, I had kids and I, uh, my kids, you know, grew up sort of, you know, started growing up, you know hopefully well and happy, but, you know, but I didn't really achieve anything else. And since I quit drinking, I've published two books, I've done the TEDx talk, I've met people all over the world. I've sort of, you know, my life is much, much bigger um, than it ever was before. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't, you know, I, I, I didn't realize quite how dramatic that, uh, that change would be. But uh, yeah, I think if I hadn't been drinking, I would have I would have been become a writer much. It was always my dream, and I just you know just put off trying I, because I was too scared of failure, and it wasn't until I quit drinking that I started writing again. so uh, so yeah, so who knows what I, I might have done if I hadn't been drinking, but you're right, I don't actually regret the drinking days. I don't regret the things I did. Uh, because you know, at, at the time it was fun. Let's be honest. You know, it was, you know, I had I had yeah. a great time. It but just got
0: to the point where it wasn't fun anymore. You know? That's exactly it. I mean, I talk to clients all the time, and one I I hear a couple things a lot. One of which is it wasn't all bad. I mm-hmm. had a lot of good times. It was a lot of fun, and I was like, yeah, me too. Absolutely. It's just like you said earlier. At some point is it good enough to keep going? Is it making your life worse or better? And all the fears that you have around how your life might be small and depressing and bad and whatever, when you stop drinking, that's actually, it's the farthest thing Mm -hmm. from the truth. Your life gets bigger and more fun and more exciting and you make deeper friendships and relationships and feel more joy. And you know, it's just time to let go of the thing that is sort of like keeping you stuck, like making the days pass without big achievements, without big joys, without anything. The way I, I think about it is, you know, if you
1: drink to take the edge off the bad things, what you're also doing without realizing is taking the edge off all the good things too. So when you stop, you have to deal with the bad things, but the good things become so much better. So it's like turning, it's like turning yeah. the the color up on, on, you know, the color contrast on, on your, your television screen. Yeah. You know, it sort of just make
0: everything. Well, and let's be clear, like your beginning part sucks, right? There are so many women who do the first four days, the first seven days, the first 14 days, maybe even the first month of not drinking. And then they go back to drinking and that is literally the worst yeah. fucking part of it all right so you're doing the mm-hmm. worst part over and over and you're thinking that's what life without alcohol is and it's just yeah, not yeah exactly which is why which is why um dry january for instance
1: you know can be a bad thing in some ways because you know if you only do a month as you say you're doing the hard bit without the good bit having kicked in yet so, so you're just getting a bad impression of, of what life without alcohol is like. You really need to give it 100 days before you start, you know, before the balance shifts and it becomes less hard and more yeah. good, you know, and then the balance keeps shifting over time until the sort of good bits get better and better and the hard, bit get, hard bits get easier and easier. But 100 days is about that tipping point. So so a month isn't really enough. and. You know, again, I found yeah. that because people weren't talking about quitting drinking, there wasn't an understanding of that. You know, I thought that, you know, within about three weeks, I would get to, you know, the, the point at which, you know, things would stop changing, you know. But I didn't realize actually things carried on changing for about two years.
0: You know? So, uh, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, I, one of the things that, um, you know, a lot of my clients, so I work with them originally, they sign up and say, okay, I'm committed to doing 100 days without alcohol. Hopefully they're excited for it. They have, they think, you know, a lot of them have never gotten past day four or day seven before, but, you know, we're sort of like, okay, we're committing to this. And the reason is that there are, there's those predictables, you know, highs and lows, the dips, the fears that come up, the challenges that come up, and you describe them so perfectly in your book that if you give up on day 33 when it's hard and you have a bad day and you're like, I haven't drank in 33 days, my life's not better. Therefore, I might as well drink. It's like, yeah. no, you know, you're having a shit day. That yeah. happens in yeah. life. Very, you know, your life it's actually easy is initially
1: better. to blame everything that goes wrong on the fact that you're not drinking. Whereas, you know, as you say, life isn't always easy anyway, you know, whether you're drinking or not. It's sort of, you know, some days are good and some days are bad. And that's just the way it is. But um, yeah, it's very easy to think, oh, sort of, you know, I'm feeling miserable today it's because I'm not
0: drinking. It's, you know, it's like, well, no, sometimes you just feel miserable, you know, it's just... Because you're a fully feeling human being. But if you don't drink, the next day you don't have a hangover. You're, the wine witch mm-hmm. doesn't come back so strongly. And, you know, you'll feel better. Like, it's, it's so much better. But I love the 100-day concept because, you know, in your book, too, I think it's around day 123, where you talk about your transformation. And everybody is like, and I did this too. I was like, I have not in my first month, because I was kind of a bottle and a half of wine a night, seven nights a week girl. um, I had not consumed 40 Mm -hmm. bottles of wine, like and I'm five three. So ingesting that much is insane. But I was like, how am I not skinny? Like, look at the (laughs) calories I have not consumed. And the transformation happens. It just, your body is so messed up. You said, it. you know, for you, it was day 123 or something when everybody was like, what have you been doing? You look amazing. Yeah, it's it's a bit like turning around a super tanker. you know. Again, it doesn't happen immediately because, you
1: know, I I think, you know, initially your whole body goes into shock in a way. You know, it's just sort of, and you have to, it takes a while for everything to recalibrate, you know. But uh, but you know you do you do start to notice again. So after about a hundred days, are you know, all sorts of things, and your hair gets shinier, your skin gets better, you lose you generally lose weight, or at least you look less puffy. Um, you know,
0: the, yeah, your face mm, gets less puffy yeah. pretty quickly, and your eyes like you can yeah, see and the difference. You get less blotchy, and you can sleep. I
1: mean, just you know, it goes on and on and on. You know, and it's I think of all the you know quitting smoking is also has a dramatic effect that you know if you're a big smoker but um you know other than that i can't think of anything else that can transform your life so dramatically both sort of mentally and physically than than giving up alcohol um you know in in just so many different ways but you know i have this i have yeah. this this um this way of thinking about you know we were talking about regrets and um you know and and looking back at our lives and you know, the way I, the, what I often say to people is, is I have this theory that we are all given when we're born a lifetime amount of alcohol that we can drink. And some <laughs> people manage to spread it out across their whole lifetime. And other people like me just drink the whole lot really fast, <laughs> and then don't have anything for the next bit yeah. of their lives. And thinking about it like that means I don't feel like I missed out. I sort of think, okay, I'm just that, I'm an all or nothing sort of person, you know, I'm not good at, at you know, if I, you give me a bar of chocolate, I'll eat the whole thing in one go. I won't eat, uh, you know, one square or you not. Know?
0: Me too. Yeah. I am not a moderator and, in anything. And,
1: you know, and I did the same with alcohol. I had my lifetime supply and I drank it all before the age of 45 and then I had to quit. And that's, you know, that's not unfair. That's yeah. just the choice I made, you know.
0: Well, and one thing I love, so on day 14, you talk about sober mornings and how revolutionary and amazing they are. And I totally agree. I kind of got my first full night's sleep on day nine, I think, Mm because I blogged about it. And it was just, you know, you talk about the night terrors and insomnia and how that had plagued you for years and that, you know, in just two weeks, suddenly you're still incredibly tired and irritated and your mind's trying to question everything you're doing, but your body mm, is healed. Yeah.
1: Um, and, you know, actually one of the big side effects I had for the first few weeks is feeling utterly exhausted. And I think that shows what we put our bodies through the fact that quitting drinking makes you so tired. You know, you feel like you've been run over by a bus um, and Yes. I always yeah. say hit by yeah. a truck. Like you're <laughs> English version. <laughs> um, yeah. so, you know, and I, I think that just shows how bad it is because you know, it shouldn't giving up something, you know, anything
0: else should not make you know make you feel that that exhausted. Well, you're in physical withdrawal. Like your body is physically withdrawing from the drug, and the only thing that makes it feel better is the drug. Unless you yeah, wait and it's, it it out. it's
1: recovering. It's just, you know, it's a healing process. And when you're healing from anything, sleep is really helpful. But, you know, there's a great trick um, I discovered for the first, the early days. So, you know, if you're in the first week or two or three of, of not drinking, um, you know, just a really neat little trick, which I found really helpful, is just to switch your time frame. Um, switch the hours of, of the day that you do things. So when you quit drinking, the hardest, hardest time is the evening, because that's normally when people drink. So, you know, I used to start drinking at about 6 p.m. That was my wine o'clock. And I carried on drinking until I went to sleep. But I didn't drink in the morning. So mornings to me were never associated with alcohol. But evenings were absolutely associated with alcohol. So when I quit drinking, evenings were really, really hard. But mornings were fabulous because I'd wake up feeling reinvigorated and energetic and proud of myself and all those things so what I started did in the early days was I went to bed really early because I thought actually I want less evening Mm -hmm. and more morning so I just switched my day so I started going to bed when my kids went to bed at about 8 p.m and I'd wake up at about 5 a.m which feeling great and and that time switch is just really helpful because it means I you only
0: have two or three hours in the evening to get through you know, and then the yeah, I think that's a great idea. And it's so helpful. I did. Um, I started working out in the morning at 530. Mm. So I got up at five. And, you know, doing that got all my anxiety out. And it also gave me a really good excuse to yeah. go to bed really early, yeah. same as you. And the days I wasn't working out, I was just sitting at 530 in the morning, but with my cup of coffee, in my quiet home, like you, I had young mm-hmm. kids. So I just was like, any time alone well, was I, amazing. I so I love that
1: trend. in the hours between 5am and 8am, you know, that in my writing, you did the house is quiet, so you can think more clearly, you can think more laterally, you know, it's a magical time. And you know, no drinker ever thinks
0: 5am is a magical time. <laughs> Oh my God, they're probably falling back to sleep from the 3 a.m. wake up, just stressed beyond belief and exhausted about how am I going to get yeah, through my day. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, I do not miss those 3 a.m. No, wake-ups at you all. You know, again, it's everybody is, you know, drinkers
1: are, you know, share so much in common. And actually the getting sober, we again we share so much in common. But um, you know, one thing that almost every big drinker I've spoken to has said is it's 3am is that particular time. And I think that that's when, yeah. you know, because you get, you often go to sleep very easily when you're drinking because you're sort of anesthetized <laughs> into sleep. But then, you know, as yes. your body processes all the toxins, it wakes you up at 3am and you're often really dehydrated and sort of, you know, and you know, that's the, that's the, those terrible hours when you start, you know, hating yourself and Yeah oh, awful. I
0: wouldn't want to go back there. No, no. But you know, once you, like you said, day 14, sober sleep, sober mornings, feeling good. Just it's only two weeks, like just get through the first two weeks and your trick about switching your hours, going to bed early. I used, I had a 22 month old. I think our Mm -hmm. stories are very similar because You also quit drinking when you, I was going to bring it up. You said not the girl he married and you had been married maybe 13, Mm -hmm. 14 years when you quit drinking. Yes. So I was married 14 years too, when I quit drinking and I had a 22 month old and um, I used to rock her to sleep in her room, whereas normally I would be desperately trying Mm -hmm. to get her to bed and run downstairs to keep drinking. I put in my earbuds. I listened to all the quit lid on audio tape, all the sober podcasts, all the things that I would just rock her to bed for an hour because I wasn't drinking anyway. And then I would just go straight to my room and, you know, put on my iPad and watch a show and read a book and tuck in and that helped me just not mm, go back yeah, downstairs. I did the same, right? I, not, I also yeah. used to. Um, yeah.
1: I used to cook the evening meal in the morning, um, so I could then just reheat it. Uh, sort of because the other thing is, I associated cooking with drinking because. You know, I would start drinking at 6 p.m. I would start cooking for the family. And while I was cooking, I would be, you know, I'd be drinking a glass of wine. And and those two things went together in my head. So, you know, again, switching your routines so that you don't have so many associations with with drinking is really helpful. So I would cook, prepare food in the morning. And then, you know, and I, I apologized to my husband and said, look, you know, for the next couple of weeks, I'm, I'll prepare something in the morning. You you heat it up, eat when you want. I'm going to bed, <laughs> you know, so, and I would go to yeah. bed with a hot chocolate
0: and some toast. And uh, yeah. oh, I love the hot chocolate. <laughs> That's awesome. So one thing that comes up a lot—it came up for me. I had a lot of fears about it. I know it comes up with women I talk to, and you talk about it in um, the chapter on day 33, not mm. the girl he married, which is fears around what your spouse will think of you not drinking, whether they're going to be disappointed, whether, um, you know, we have so many associations. Like I used to self-label myself Mm -hmm. a red wine girl. Like I was the fun girl. I was the one who organized all the wine tastings, all the date nights, all the weekends away. And that was what I did. And so, you know, my husband, Sure, he wanted me not to open the second bottle of wine on a Tuesday night and to, you know, not pass out on the couch, Mm -hmm. quote, unquote, falling asleep. Um, That's what I called it (laughs) Um, or have a hangover in the morning. But he didn't really, you know, he wasn't sure I needed to stop forever or needed to stop at all. And so you said the same thing about your husband.
1: He never wanted me to stop. He wanted me to cut down. But I couldn't cut down. I tried to cut down for years. I would have loved to have cut down, but I just it just never worked. Um, and it would drive me crazy. You know, there's sort of constant chatter in my head. The more I tried to cut down, the more my wine witch would sort of, you know, get cross and sort of, you know, and yeah, uh, it just didn't work. Yeah. Um, Uh, But he didn't want me to quit altogether. And I was terrified that I was sort of changing the rules of our relationship. You know, he didn't marry a non drinker He married the party girl, you know. And I think part of the issue was that I was judging his reaction um, based on my own issues. So I know that if he had told me that he was quitting drinking, I would have been horrified. You know, I I, I yes. really would have found that really hard to deal with. and so I assumed he would feel the same. but the truth is he's not an addict. He doesn't have the same relationship with alcohol as me. So actually he didn't really mind you know he sort of he and and what he says now is that you know he's not only has it made our whole, marriage and relationship much much stronger um and our family life much happier but he drinks less himself because he doesn't have me constantly opening another bottle of wine and egging him on so he feels much healthier too so you know i think if you have a, a partner who does not have an issue with alcohol they probably will find that, you know, the upsides of you not drinking way, way outweigh the downsides um, and will be totally supportive. The thing that is tricky is if your partner is also an addict Um, and I have a number of uh, messages from people on a regular basis saying, what do I do? I've given up drinking. I'm really happy about it. I'm really proud of myself. My life is so much better. But my partner still drinks really problematically and doesn't like the fact that I don't drink. And I don't like the fact that they're killing themselves and I don't know what to do. And that is really, really, really hard Um, because as we both know, nobody can tell you to quit drinking. It's something you have to decide yourself. And, you know, what I hope is that in that situation, you know, providing such a great role model and showing how much better life can be without alcohol will persuade, you know, your partner to do the same thing. But the truth is you can't make them, you know, you can't, you just have to wait till they're ready to make the choice themselves. And if it's not possible for you to wait, then, then, you know, maybe it's best to let them try and do it on their own, you know, and that's really hard. Yeah.
0: And in addition to that, your life is going to be better regardless yeah, of what yeah, they do. Absolutely. You have to do the right thing for you, you know. regardless. Yeah. Well, because then you'll be happier. And, you know, I always think that when one person in a relationship changes, inevitably the entire relationship mm. changes. So whether or not, you know, like you, if my husband had told me you need to not drink, I would have been so defensive and resentful and rebellious and all Mm. the things, right. You know, at the same time, there is no one who drinks like any woman out there whose whose partner is an addict or drinks problematically or has that wolfy voice or whatever you call it. Um, they have the same thought in their head that you do. They know what that 3 a.m. wake up feels like. They know how awful they feel the next day. They know their depression, anxiety is is getting worse. And, and if you're living with someone who is coming out of that and suddenly saying, I feel better, I'm up at five in the morning, I have energy, um, my life is more calm, I have to think that that inevitably is something that they, in their low hmm. moments, reference you know, and you can just provide support and say, try Um,
1: it for a while. It's a difference between push factors and pull factors. You know, if nobody, I don't believe gives up alcohol successfully or easily because they feel they have to, you know, give up alcohol because you want to. And because you can see, you can picture a life without it. That is so much better than the life you're in. And you're right if you live with somebody who is drinking problematically then you are you know you can show them what that life looks like if you you know trying to tell somebody that they have to change they have to do things differently that uh, you know threatening somebody none of that works it just you know it just it just doesn't work, and it, and often it backfires. In the the more pressure you put on somebody, the more they end up drinking to cope with the, you know, increased self loathing and fear and all of those you know negative emotions because that's what we do when we're addicts. You know, we numb those emotions with drinks. So
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. And I so I did wanna did wanna bring up um, what you said because this is a huge huge fear that so many women have. And you said that when you were on day 33, you actually sort of geared up the the courage to ask your husband if it bothered him that you stopped drinking and whether he missed having a drinking partner. And you know, he like you said, was not an addict, did not have that same mm-hmm. voice in his head that constantly wanted more. But he said it was a good thing and he wanted more details. And he said that you no longer fall asleep while watching TV so you can genuinely like watch shows together, that you were less grumpy, that you didn't keep him awake, tossing and turning, and that he doesn't have to drink really fast to make sure he gets his (laughs) share. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And you flip that when you say, oh, but my life's so much more exciting when I'm drinking. And the truth is, what your life is most of the time is your partner is seeing that you fall asleep watching the TV, you're super grumpy, you're up, tossing, and turning all night, and you are greedy about the amount of alcohol you get. Like, that's what you're like, God, but doesn't he miss? Yeah. His drinking and, you know,
1: I mean, I think there are probably some nights that he does still miss. You know, there's sort of, you know, the special date yeah. nights, or, you know, and we still have great date nights, but, you know, they're sort of. You know, I, I'm sure there are some times when he thinks, oh, it would be nice if if Claire was drinking with me, um, but, you know, those are very few and far between, and I don't hear there was no way he would swap those for everything that comes with it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you can, you know, yeah, you know, my husband has definitely on occasion been like, I don't know if I should say this, uh, been like, but you never rip off my shirt anymore <laughs> after a date, and I'm like, oh, Oh honey, I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I have no was, recollection you know, of it. <laughs> I know it sounds bad, but you know, we do still like before coronavirus, we went to Greece, we went to Amsterdam, we, you know, hiked from through Santorini, like we went on a boat tour. Like life is still good. The difference is absolutely we go out on the deck on the Greek islands. And he drinks his beers, and I drink my non-alcoholic drinks. Like yeah, that's and the difference. actually, uh,
1: that I think is a really good trick. If if you're the sort of person who can deal with alcohol-free drinks, and some people find them a bit of a trigger. So, you know, I always give the caveat: if if you find it triggering, then don't do it. But you know, I found alcohol-free beers and mocktails and things like that really helpful because it sort of tricked my brain into thinking it it was sort of time to relax. And, um, you know, so I find on a date night, if I match what my husband is drinking, but with the alcohol free version, it still feels like we're doing exactly the same thing, you know, and I still feel as relaxed as he does. And I still have as much fun as he does. So, you know, so the only difference, as you say, is that he's drinking alcohol, alcoholic beer and I'm drinking the non-alcoholic beer. But, you know, other than that, it's just the same. So yeah, and the other thing I found about dates, funnily enough, is that when you're not drinking, you're so much more um, uh, so you're so much more inventive about what to do on date nights. Because our date nights were always, let's go to a restaurant and eat lots of food and get trashed. You know that was that was all. We'll go yes. to a party and drink lots and get trashed. You know, and that was it. And you know now I'm much more inventive, so I might sort of say, "Oh, let's go to the theater you know um, or let's go to an art gallery or let's go for a really nice boat trip or you know uh, there's yes. there are so many other things that you know that that we do now with date nights or or I do when I'm meeting friends than I used to you know I used to be you know i, I think I think we've become very lazy as as drinkers about how to how to relax and unwind because we automatically automatically just think, Oh, you know, where should we go to have a drink? You know? So there are much more fun things to do with life.
0: <laughs> yeah. And also, I mean, I, I loved how you talk about that because, you know, even in your book in the early days, you you were reflecting on your friendships and saying, I actually look at my calendar now when you're not drinking and you have seven social events this week but only one of them is a drinks party the rest are walks and coffees mm-hmm. and and a million other things with friends where you actually have deeper conversations yeah, yeah.
1: and uh, yeah it's funny cuz i mean i'd realized that you know i used to i go to a we used to go to a party and i would see i would talk to about 20 30 different people but i would say the same thing to all of them <laughs> <laughs> and and I wouldn't know the next day I wouldn't be able to remember what any of them have said to me. So, you know, it's not a great way of building relationships really, you know, whereas now I meet a girlfriend and we'll yeah. go for a walk for an hour and we'll have coffee and we'll you know, we'll offload and we'll share our hopes and fears and dreams and you know, and it that makes for a much stronger and deeper relationship than talking at a party about the latest celebrity gossip and then forgetting what you said anyway. <laughs>
0: Although the celebrity gossip yeah, is fun for sure gossip, as long as
1: that's not all you talk about
0: <laughs> no, no, I but I mean, I think that's one of the um one of my biggest fears when I quit drinking was that it was gonna be a life of mm-hmm. isolation that I would have no fun and no friends, and that I would never be able to hang out with my friends at parties again. and the truth is that in the beginning, I needed to alter. I needed to hang out with my friends, but not at parties, right? It was too hard for me to go to a restaurant with them all mm-hmm. drinking wine and me not. Um, so we did we did brunches instead of dinners. We did walks instead of happy hours. We did you know hikes, mm-hmm. other things, which I had to initiate, right? You have to because everybody's like you said, you get a little lazy. There's a shorthand sometimes hey, let's get drinks just means I want to see you. It's literally like calling tissues Kleenex, right? It's just the branding. But then after that, like now I can go to a barbecue or go out to dinner with, you know, I worked in corporate and everybody's like, oh, let's go for drinks. In my mind, I take that now as face value. We are going to go somewhere and have drinks. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean alcohol, Mm -hmm. you know? But you sort of go through phases and in no way do you actually become super isolated if you are able to make an effort I, I and get creative
1: that I still have
0: the friends that I used to
1: have and I have a whole load of new friends as well but there are some friends the friends I had who drank the same way that I did um and you know the, with those those friends our relationship was very much based on the drinking so when I quit drinking, some of those friends found it hard. And, you know, as a result, yes. I see them less than I used to probably. And that is way made up of the fact that, you know, as I said, I've got a whole load of new friendships. And so my the friendships I have are much deeper. But, you know, there, there will be some people who, who don't find it easy, but that's their problem and not your problem, you know, and. And it may yeah. well be that one day they will come to the conclusion that they also want to give up drinking, and they will come to you and say, "How do I do it?" <laughs> you know. So, so it's, yeah,
0: uh, yeah. And yeah. Then
1: there's, you know, even for me, where you know, so much of my life was based on drink. There's only a handful of, of friends that would fall into that category.
0: Yeah, my my barometer is always if doing something is not going to be any fun if you're not drinking. Maybe that thing just actually yeah. isn't that fun. Yeah, absolutely, and and that goes for people as well yeah, as events, I, right? I think that's really like,
1: worth thinking about with uh, parties, for instance. You know, as sometimes, you know, sometimes even now, I'll go to a party and I'll think, "God, this is no fun because I'm not drinking," and I have to remind myself, "It's like, no, this is no fun because it's actually no fun," <laughs> you know and drinking just might stop you realizing that quite so fast but you know but it's not because you're not drinking it's because it's just not a great event yeah
0: (laughs) and and that applies to people that applies to events that applies to like all the things we hmm. think we should do like I had a client who was saying oh my god I have three little kids and I just am dying eggs for Easter and I fucking hate it and I want to drink and I was like Stop dying eggs. <laughs> like, you know, just if that makes you want to drink, you don't have to do that. And she was like, it never. Like, it was a great me. feminist expression life is too short
1: to stuff a mushroom. <laughs> I have never heard that.
0: I can't remember who it was that first said that. But um, yeah, it's like, stop dying yeah. eggs. I love that. <laughs> I know, just like if it makes you want to drink, it's the thing that you want to drink to tolerate that needs yeah. to change. Not that drinking is the solution. When you stop drinking, you become much better at listening to your own instincts, you know,
1: and, and uh, because drinking masks all that, you know, when you stop drinking, you sort of, you're more able to listen to that voice that says, yes, I should do this or, you know, more of this and no, I should do less of that. And, you know, and, and you can act on that. You know, I think it's, it's really worth every now and again, just taking stock of your life and thinking, what are the things that give me joy? And what are the things that I hate? And doing more of the, the, the more of the things that give you joy and less of the things that you hate, you know. And if you keep rebalancing yeah. like that, you know, that's the secret to to living a, yeah.
0: a happy, fulfilled life. And you deserve to be happy. Like it's, you know, when you're drinking, you I mean, I just spent way too much time beating myself up and trying to figure out what the hell was wrong with me and you know, telling myself I wouldn't do something and doing it again and and it just was kind of a crappy place to live. I was working really hard to make mm-hmm. it look really good on the outside. But I was just exhausted and, frankly, physically ill quite yeah, a bit of the time. Yeah,
1: yeah, I know. I was the same. You know, it's that sort of that thing of the sort of, you know, the swan that looks like gliding along on the surface. But underneath, there's these little, little legs paddling away furiously yes. trying to
0: keep the show on the road. You know, that's that's what life feels yeah. like, you know. Yeah. Well, so one of the things before we go, I wanted to ask you about was your book, the authenticity project, because I loved it. I love character driven novels that take me to places where I am not and dive into their lives and their emotions. My husband likes app, you know, end of world <laughs> zombie novels. So we are like night and day, but your book came out and um, just absolutely loved it. So Tell us oh, well, about it. Um, yeah, it's called The Authenticity Project. And um, it was sort of inspired
1: by what I'd been through because I realized that telling the truth about my life, you know, and and exposing the fact that the perfect life that, that I was portraying on Instagram and Facebook was not at all the reality, not only changed my life, but it changed the life of all these other people who, who read it. And I thought, well, what would happen if, everyone was more honest about their you know what was really going on in their lives and then I thought well you know I told the truth about my life in a blog you know and on the internet but wouldn't it be interesting if somebody did it in a old-fashioned notebook Um, and that was where the idea of the Authenticity Project came from so you know it started by an artist called Julian who's 79 and very lonely and he gets a screen exercise book and he writes on the front the authenticity project and inside he writes the truth about his life and how lonely he is and he leaves the notebook in a cafe where it's picked up by the cafe owner Monica who writes a story about her life and uh, leaves the book somewhere else and the book is passed between six different people who all get to meet each other and they all help transform each other's lives so it's really about it's about kindness it's about community it's about you know the power of being authentic and and the power of truth and and it's it's good fun and uplifting <laughs> so
0: yeah i mean it it you know i think just the part you said about You know, whether it's everyone lies about their lives or just nobody tells the Mm -hmm. whole truth, right? We put out our most flattering versions and the reality is, is messier, but just being able to see how in the book and what I've experienced in my life, like when you're honest, you get to find out what's actually going on in everyone else's life. And feel less alone, and it's beautiful, and you make these amazing yes, connections. Yes, and so
1: and the other I and mean, one of the themes that goes through it is is the fact that you know we actually those flaws, the things that we try so hard to hide, are actually the things that make us really unique and human and special. Um, and there's a quote I I chose for the the front of the book, which is a Leonard Kirk Cohen lyric. Um, And it goes, ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And, you know, and that, that to me summarized the whole thing. You know, it's those cracks that, you know, we're so ashamed of that actually, you know, allow the light in They're They're what makes us real. What I hope is that as people get to know the characters, they realize that their flaws are just part of them. That's what makes them makes them who they are. Um, and, you know, I, I i think people hopefully fall in love with them despite their flaws, you know, or even because of their flaws and some yeah. cases. So
0: yeah. Or in the book some of the characters they have these needs or these wants or these dreams or their these desires that they sort of keep up this facade that, you know, who I am and what I actually need and that they'll never get met unless they they share what mm. they actually want, because nobody knows what's missing in their lives. So they yeah, can't get yeah, it. Exactly. Them. Exactly. Yeah. And you get to dive into your neighborhood <laughs> in London, which, you know, sitting here in Seattle, Washington, for a year, not traveling or even going out to dinner. It was lovely to like read about cafes and painting classes and apartments in a city that I don't get to visit. Oh, well, I that's love a great that.
1: thing about literature, isn't it? Is you can travel without leaving your own room. <laughs> you know?
0: so, yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, so
1: I, I love reading books set in cities that I don't know. So yeah. And Seattle is one of the cities well, so, I desperately want to visit. I've never Oh
0: mm-hmm. Seattle? Well come when coronavirus yeah, is over. It's you. a beautiful city. <laughs> you have to come in the summer. It's gorgeous. All lakes oh. and mountains and great restaurant. Amazing <laughs> coffee. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And not just Starbucks, although I used to work at Starbucks in the corporate. So I love Starbucks, <laughs> but there are just a million other amazing coffee shops mm. around too. Hooray. <laughs> so is there anything you want to leave listeners with about my favorite thing about the Sober Diaries is you know, how one woman stopped drinking and started living. So anything about how your life has changed or, or what they can expect?
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I would just say, if you're listening to this and you feel alone, you are not alone. And if you're listening to this and you're feeling scared, then, you know, please don't be scared because, you know, although it's not an easy thing to do, it's, you will never, ever regret it. And, you know, you're, life will be transformed in so many different ways that you know you can't even comprehend sitting where you are so you know so
0: be excited because it's going to be amazing thank you that's perfect thank you for coming on the podcast oh thank you thank you for listening to this episode of the hello someday podcast if you're interested in learning more about me It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves.